I'm Kelly J. Grace, and welcome to Divine Connections. You're listening to Episode 34. This is a podcast about connecting divine truth, that's God's Word, to your everyday life. It's often a challenge to figure out how to incorporate biblical truth into our real life and relationships. As Christians, we believe God's Word, but sometimes we struggle to apply it to our own life. Well, if that's ever been your experience, then you're in the right place. Today, we're talking about how to live as a shining light in what is often a dark world. This is the sixth episode in a series of seven. Listen in. You know, when we began this series, we pointed out that these seven words that define our relationships are all prepositions. They're parts of speech. Now, they describe and determine how things are related to one another. That's the function of a preposition in our language. And these are the words that reveal God's design for the shape of our relationships, and they show us His plan for how we're supposed to relate to Him and to others. And this week's word is among, and it comes from Philippians 2, verses 14 to 16. And there Paul writes to the Philippians and he counsels them. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So did you catch it there? He says, among whom? you shine. Well, just like those believers in Philippi, we live among a multitude of what Paul calls a crooked and twisted generation. Now, he's describing their behavior as crooked, and that word actually means wicked. And their purposes he describes as twisted, and that translates to perverse or turned away from God. So basically, Paul is saying these people oppose God's plans and his purposes. And most of all, They oppose his influence and his control over their lives. Now, you probably can think of many, many people in your realm of acquaintances that that describes. You know, it actually describes most of the culture that we live in today. So what can we learn from what Paul told those Philippians? Well, what we need to recognize first and foremost is that our lives— The lives you and I are living are supposed to shine brightly against this very dark backdrop. And Philippians offers us a metaphor, if you will, for the way that we should live in the world among our friends and our neighbors and our acquaintances who are not yet children of God. We are to shine brightly. Now, This world, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's never been a godly place filled with light and goodness, at least not since the day that Eve took that fruit from the tree in the Garden of Eden. Um, I hear others longing for the old days when people weren't so ungodly, and I think, 
to myself sometimes, well, you mean like the times in the book of Acts when every Greek and Roman city was full of temples that were full of prostitutes, many of whom were young children sold into sex slavery? You mean times like that when the world wasn't so evil? The world has always been evil. And I'm not sure that our modern world is any more evil It's just that you and I know so much more about it thanks to our cell phones and our computers and 24-7 cable news. The darkness is just out there continually, and unfortunately, we bring it into our own lives and homes through our cell phones, as I said, and computers and so forth. We we allow ourselves to constantly be seeing it. So what does God want from us, given that he's left us here among the ungodly? I mean, isn't that a big question sometimes that people have when they first come to Christ is, well, if I'm going to go to heaven when I die, or if Jesus is going to at some point come back for us, those of us that haven't yet passed away. Why doesn't God just take us right now? What are we doing here? Why are we left here? Well, what is God up to? What is his plan? What are his purposes? And we get a little insight into that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Jesus himself is going to tell his disciples the reason why they're going to be left here. Now, they don't know at this point, that he's going to go to the cross and that he will then ascend back into heaven and that they'll stay here on earth. But here's what Jesus tells them in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all that are in the house in the same way. So Jesus is saying he's making a parallel, isn't he, between the lives of these disciples and this little illustration of a city set on a hill or a candle set on a lampstand. He says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus is telling them, I am intentionally leaving you among the not yet redeemed so that you can bring the light of the, into their world. Otherwise, they would be in complete darkness. And I want you to note that the primary way that others perceive the light is through our good works. There's no getting around that. Now, for years and years, thousands of years, there's been kind of a misunderstanding and a, and even a dispute Um I would think that actually the major difference between the Protestant movement and the Catholic Church was the place and the role of works in the life of a believer. In the Protestant perspective, works are subsequent to salvation and in fact only made possible by the fact that a person is redeemed and is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit and able to uh, to do these good works, these things that are Uh, bringing light into the lives of others. In the Catholic faith, those works must serve as proof that without seeing and who's to say how many works you must see, um, there's no confidence of salvation. Well, that was if you 
want to think of it this way, the hill that Martin Luther was willing to die on. He, he was saying, it is by faith and faith alone that we receive salvation, not by our works. So that's the distinction. But those good works do actually have a role. And Jesus says their role is that it is through those that others in the world perceive the light. They see your good works. And who do they give glory to? To you? Do they say you're so awesome? No, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. So I want you to see that the important part of the works that you and I are commanded to do is that this is the primary way we let our light shine. So God plans on putting you and me on a lampstand and putting our good works on display. Jesus says, I've shared my light with you, and now I've placed the Holy Spirit within you for a purpose, and that is to give out light. Now, I'm currently reading through the Gospel of John, and I just this morning read what Jesus said about John the Baptist, and I thought, this is a perfect little inclusion to this, because now John the Baptist becomes a person in the very time that Jesus was on earth, who is doing, did do, what Jesus is talking about here. So in John 5.35, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He said, he was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. When he asked the crowd, what, what do you think about John? Here's what John was. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That's what I hope people can say about you and about me, that we are burning and shining lamps, and that the truth is, in seeing our good works, they're willing to rejoice for a while, for however long you and I are here after we've become redeemed, and shining that light that others are willing to rejoice for that time in the light. So how do we give out light? If you look back at Matthew 5.16, again, Jesus says it's through our good works. And when I saw that phrase, good works, it really kind of hearkened me back to Ephesians 2.10. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I came to Christ at a Bible study where a pastor shared Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And that I told you the story that the truth is Ephesians 2.10, I didn't even hear about that for probably five to seven years later. And all of a sudden, those three verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, those three make up the story of the Christian life. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you probably know this passage, a famous passage. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Could it be any clearer? Not of works, lest any should boast. I mean, God knows what we're like. If we could earn our way into heaven, we would then spend eternity bragging about it. So God erased that. That possibility. And the truth is, Jesus's prayer in the garden, Lord, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. There was no possible way for you and I to do enough good works of any kind to redeem ourselves. The redemption of our souls is precious, and it required the blood of Christ to cleanse us from that sin and to uh, 
access for us peace with God. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should work, should boast. And then Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God beforehand prepared that we should walk in them. So, this, we are God's masterpiece. That's what that word means. We're his poema, his creation, his artistic, beautiful creation. And he has created us anew in Christ. That's our new birth. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new so that we can do the good works that he planned long ago for you and I to do. So it's not hyperbole to say that God has a plan for your life and mine. He's had it since before the world began, and he seeks to bring us into relationship with him and then use each of us to shed light in the world of men by the good works that we do. So I want to remind you, there are people that you and I are going to meet and to befriend, people we should be speaking with and sharing enough of our life and our struggles with so that they can actually see our faith and hear us testify to God's goodness. And they'll get a close-up look at our trials and how we walk through the fire. They may also be people who are on the receiving end of good works, our generosity, our helpfulness, our kindness, our goodness may directly benefit them. Now, let's go back to Philippians 2, 14 and 16 and look a little more closely at what Paul was telling those believers about how to live in a dark and fallen world. How do we live among the not yet redeemed? Well, the first thing he says is, First of all, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Okay, no grumbling and disputing is the first thing. And I would say... Here, I'm going to just put out a challenge. I want you to take that truth to the office with you. Take it wherever you work. Take it to the next family gathering. Take it to the airport. Take it on your commute. Take it home to an unsaved spouse or to your frantic toddlers. No grumbling or disputing. Then Ephesians 4.29 reminds us, it says, don't let any corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only words that are good for building up as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to all who hear. Be blameless and innocent in your conduct. Don't let sin mar you or dim your light. And then he says, hold tightly to the word of life. He's continuing to encourage us as God's children to follow the example of Jesus in our character and our conduct. And now he's listing some of the ways that we'll live when we have the mind of Christ. And remember, if you go back and read chapter two of Philippians, it's really all about us having that mind of Christ. Let this same mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And now Paul is kind of leaning back on that. And he says, if we think like Jesus, then we will act like him. We will be gracious in our speech. We will be humble 
not self-centered, not selfish. We'll consider the interests of others and we'll choose to have a servant's heart over a selfish heart. We will live out our salvation to its powerful and transforming potential. That is a question I sometimes think about, especially right after I've, you know, blown it in some way. I think to myself, Kelly, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have the wonderful counsel of God's Word from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Are you sure that you tapped into all of that when you then decided to say that thing you said or make that decision you made? Did you maybe forget about that that exhortation to think about others and to count, count what they want uh, higher than what you want to serve others? No, no, no. And so then I think to myself, well, I, I did not actually lean in to that powerful transforming potential. I just instead did what felt best for me at the moment. Now, Colossians 1.13, that's another great scripture that I think kind of fits in here. And it says that God has rescued us the children of God, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. So you and I should have exceeding pity on those people who are not yet redeemed, who have not yet been transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son, but instead are still living in that kingdom of darkness. Our citizenship is in another kingdom the kingdom of God's dear son, but we are here in this kingdom of darkness as ambassadors for Christ and as light bearers in the midst of darkness. Now, once again, I'm going to circle back to Matthew 5 and that metaphor Jesus gave us of the city set on the hill, the candle set on the lampstand. If we go back to that, we realize that light represents goodness and truth and righteousness. Just as light shines in the darkness and dispels it, it pushes it away. I one time in Scotland heard a woman sharing uh, in a devotional, and she was talking about this, and she said, just as we walked in here this morning, and in the room we had walked into, it was in an old conference center, and it was divided by this huge, thick velvet curtain. I mean, it was very thick, maybe almost an inch thick. And when they spread the curtains apart, the light from the part we were standing in immediately spread into the darkness. Now, I want you to think about this. When when the women opened the curtain that morning, the darkness didn't spill into the room with light. Instead, the light rushed into the room that was dark and started illuminating all the way to the far wall and the corners where the chairs were stacked. So God is saying, you and I are left here and we are to disperse light in the midst of darkness. And it's our good works that do that. And they continually point back to God's own generous and loving nature. You know, that's why we don't seek glory for ourselves, but we direct all the praise to God because you and I know the truth about ourselves, that if it were not for the Holy Spirit, not for that transforming enlightenment that comes from God's word, we would be every bit as dark as those that don't yet know his son. So we are to be a positive influence on the people around us, the ones among whom 
we live. We are to be spreading the light of Christ wherever we go. And this means living a life that's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And we've already been in Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians. Now we're going to jump into Galatians. Those are, to me, some of the four most crucial books any believer ought to read over and over and over and over again. But in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we have that recounting, that list of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is singular, and we see it in these nine different graces. The first is love. And then there's joy and peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we are to be a source of hope and encouragement, bringing light into the lives of those who are struggling in the darkness. And the way we do that again is through our good works. You know, as I stop and think about the myriad of cultural and social woes that are evident in America, in the Western world, everything from the current opioid crisis to mental health issues, and both of those influence homelessness and gun violence, they all serve to widen our sphere of possible service. There is so much hurt and pain so much darkness around us that it should be very easy for you and I to shine light into that and to bring that influence of the light of Jesus to people who are trapped, literally trapped in the darkness. We are called to be a shining example of God's love and grace in the world, illuminating the path for others so that they can find their way to Him. Now, I want to share one last thing before we close this, and it it really comes from the example of the man named Lot. Do you remember Lot in the Old Testament in Genesis? Lot is Abraham's nephew, and there came a time when there was strife between Lot's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Abraham, and they were, you know, fighting over the grazing land and the water for their flocks. And so Abraham comes to Lot and says, it's, you know, we're brethren. It's not right that there's this strife between us. So I want you to look out over the land and you pick first and you go wherever you want to go and I'll go the other direction. Now, You need to see the graciousness of Abraham. God had promised all this land to Abraham. That's what they're in the middle of. They are walking. God said to Abraham, get up and walk through the length and breadth of the land I'm giving to you. But when there was strife, gracious Abraham is going to offer first choice to his nephew Lot. Well, Lot looks at the land and he's trying to figure out what's going to work out best for him. He's not concerned about what's going to be best for his gracious uncle Abraham, who actually is promised all this land. No, he's thinking of himself. And so it says he chose this well-watered area actually in the plain near Sodom and Gomorrah. And over time, he keeps moving closer and closer until we ultimately see him living within Sodom and having become actually the men of Sodom saying, this man wants to be a judge among us, meaning a a civic leader here in this place. And we do know he had already married several of his daughters to men in that place. And uh, so Lot 
kind of moved right in and was seemed to be okay with what was happening in Sodom. But in the New Testament, if we look in 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to get a little commentary on this story from Genesis. So 2 Peter 2, 7 to 8, tells us how Lot's choices eventually had affected him. It says this, In speaking about the fire and brimstone that rained down from heaven in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter tells us this. He says God rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day by day. Now, here's the lesson in Lot's experience, if you haven't already jumped ahead of me. This is the lesson to us from what happened with him. And that is, Lot is living among a twisted and crooked generation, isn't he? Just like you and me. Well, we have to be exceedingly careful about what we see. And I'm going to put that in air quotes, okay? If if I was speaking at a conference, you'd see me lift up my hands and make air quotes. We have to be exceedingly careful about what we see, what we focus on, what we dwell on, because you and I can't let that darkness torment our souls. We must continually give out the light while constantly refusing the darkness and entry into our minds and our hearts. We cannot allow ourselves to be drugged down and pulled into the gravitational orbit of darkness. We can't let it pull our gaze away from Jesus. That's what happened to Lot. It says he was plagued by, in one version, I think it's the King James, says he was vexed in his soul by all the evil that he beheld. Well, my first counsel would be, stop beholding that. Move out of town if it's that bad. What are you doing living amongst and this close, in these close quarters with these people? You're a herdsman. Get out there and pitch a tent like Abraham is. You don't have to live in a city and you don't have to live and behold this constantly. You don't have to bring it in via cable TV or on your phone or your iPad. You can hold a lot of this at bay. And, you know, I think sometimes we, in our desire to be um, informed, we get ourselves confronted with way too much darkness. So it says, although he knew God, we know that, that Lot knew who God was, he got his eyes focused on the people among whom he lived, and he was slowly being assimilated into their culture of darkness instead of becoming a light bearer to them. Now, that's why the book of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on the light, not the darkness, to fix our eyes on hope, not on despair to fix our eyes on promises and not on problems. We are called to become a beacon of hope and righteousness in the world, shining brightly for all to see, serving as examples to the world of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In short, you and I are just what Jesus said. We are to be as a city set on a hill. Now that means 
that we live a life that is visible. It is a public life. We don't just, we're not talking about monasticism. Is that how you say it? Where we become monks and we go hide away and don't have any interface with the world? No, we live a life that's visible, that people see in public and they, uh, but our life is instead characterized by love and righteousness, not darkness, and the glorious gospel message of God's love for all mankind and Christ's sacrifice for their sins. Those are the things that come forth out of our life. Uh, at the time I'm recording this, I've um, seen several famous Hollywood stars. Um, I just the other day saw, I think his name is Mark Wahlberg, and he was interviewed with the ash on his forehead from Ash Wednesday, talking about his Christian faith. I saw Kelsey Grammer, who portrayed Pastor Chuck Smith in the Jesus Revolution film, talking about his faith. And they're both saying, well, you know, you don't have to get in people's face with it. And I'm, I agree with that completely. You're never going to argue someone into the kingdom of God. I, I love that people want to know the word of God thoroughly. They want to understand how to make a defense for the faith. But that term is usually used in when people ask you about the hope that's within you. Can you defend it? Not about defense like an attorney in a courtroom might make arguing for something, thinking you're going to convince people. What convinces them, Jesus says, is the light that they see in you and me. That's what draws them. That's when they start asking us, how can you go through a trial like that and still have peace? Because as Jill Briscoe said, the way we march through a trial preaches a sermon loudly. Not the words we speak, but the way our faith generates for us peace in the midst of what should be complete turmoil of the soul. The ability to love our enemies, the ability to hang on to hope, and the ability to continue to focus on doing what Jesus left us here to do. So you and I, we have a call to be light in a dark world and to guide others to God's love and grace by our good works and by faithfully proclaiming God's invitation to them to come, to come just as they are and find new life in Jesus. So we aren't to get discouraged by the darkness, but we are to dispel it with the light. Remember the women I told you about in that conference center in Scotland who opened that thick, thick curtain and the light went flooding in. Keep that picture in your mind. That's what your life is to do in the midst of the darkness. And if you'll ask God, he'll show you where you can be used. You know, I have a friend who's been working in an office for 10 years while waiting for an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, she has wanted to get a job a hundred different times, maybe a thousand different times, but God has kept her there. And she's been a constant light in the darkness. And in fact, just recently, she's had an opportunity to share God's love through her good works with her boss, who has never, ever, 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 ever wanted to hear anything about God. Now, my friend has waited for 10 long years. You know, I call that patient persistence in well-doing. 
And while she's been waiting, while she's been waiting, God has been working, invisibly cultivating that fallow ground of the human heart so that at just the right time, my friend could come in and sow the seeds of the word and follow it up with good works that bring glory to God. And her employer is seeing the light, God's light. She's seeing it in my friend and she's being drawn to God because of it. So my question to you, my question to me, to all of us is, who are we living among? Who is close enough to know your trials and to watch you navigate them? Who has watched you cling to hope? Who has watched you fight fear with faith and return good for evil? Who's been close enough to see that? Who has been blessed by your generosity? Who's been supported by your help? And who has been encouraged by your gracious words? There is someone. God has you in their sphere for a purpose. You've come together with them in this world at this time, in this place, for a purpose. I just want you to remember that there is someone. Heavenly Father, you are the Father of lights. And as your children, we long to be light bearers in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we are to shine as lights in this dark world. Help us, help us to keep our eyes on you, not on the darkness. Fill us with your light and a renewed sense of love for the lost, for those who do not yet know you, the not yet redeemed. Guide us into good works and into godly conduct, into Christ-likeness. Give us gracious and yet bold words when it's appropriate. Lord, use us to guide many into the path of light that leads to salvation and into a relationship with you. We ask it, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Well, you know, as I was thinking about this whole topic of being a light to others, I recognize that maybe you're the one who feels like you're in need of some light. And what really kind of sparked that idea was I was going through some old blog posts, kind of uh, cleaning them up and correcting things, and I came across one. And I had written it really on a date when I was feeling very weak and discouraged and actually in need of some fresh light from above myself. And I reread it and I thought that might offer help. If you're in that place right now, if you're the one in need of some light, let me offer this to you. So you can read this blog post on my website at kellyjgrace.com. Just along the top menu, go over to where it says blog and there's a drop down menu there and there's a little search box and you can put this title into the search box and it'll come up. This post was called Finding the Place Where the Light Comes In. So I pray if you're in need of a little light, that could be a blessing for you. I want to 
say you can always find me on Instagram at Kelly J. Grace. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time for the last episode in this seven-part series, The Seven Words That Define Your Relationships. I'll see you then.